0: over there and so uh, uh, a family are going to church one Sunday and they decide to uh, try a new church which uh, they had heard quite a lot about Uh, this is in England it's um, it's one of those posh Anglican churches and those are the sort of churches we have to dress up really neat and tidy to go along it might have been St. Helens in Bishopsgate or All Souls in Langham Place one of the two that I had read the account of. And as the uh, the parents went, they discovered that it was a well-organized church and uh, they had a a wonderful-looking Sunday school program uh, that took place during part of the service, much the same that we have uh, here. And uh, so they sent their little girl who'd been dressed up in her best uh, dress, Sunday dress, to go along and take part in Sunday school. Now, when the parents went to collect their daughter afterwards, she comes running into the sanctuary, big old Anglican church at the back, and she's covered in red ink, red paint from the top down. On a lovely white dress. And of course, the parents are thinking to themselves, oh my word, what's going on here? And uh, mum's particularly stressed over this. And then the little girl holds up the model that they have made. And of course, it's a model of Elijah uh, with the altar and uh, the fire coming down. And the fire was the red paint. And the father said, yes, the fire of the Lord has certainly come down and consumed my daughter. Very clearly has taken place here. So when we come to the scriptures, um, this morning, uh, we might think to ourselves that this particular section of Scripture is one which is reserved for children. It's one that I'm sure all of us can remember making that model. In fact, I think it was Aaron and Iuline, was it? You, yeah, it was. So you made the model of, uh, of uh, the altar, that uh, Elijah had built, was it in December, I think, something like that, or not so long ago anyway, and so I had seen some of our children with a a round paper plate and the altar being built on it. And of course, that's how we tend to think sometimes of some of the great accounts that are recorded for us in the Scriptures. Now, if you can remember, back in December, uh, I was not speaking in the mornings, but I was was, uh, able to speak twice in the evening, and we looked at Jeremiah chapter 10. And we know that Jeremiah chapter 10 is that uh, chapter that speaks about uh, idols and idol worship. In fact, as you read the whole of Jeremiah's prophecy, you see very clearly that what he's saying is this, is that if you don't honor God, if you turn your back on him, if you start to honor idols and uh, to bring your worship to uh, idols... Um, that are made by men by the hands of men then God will turn his back on you this is what uh, 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 Jeremiah's message is and of course we know that the people were then taken into captivity by the Babylonians um, because they had rejected God they had turned their backs on him verse 5 says they are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak they must be carried because they cannot go by themselves Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. So you see, the idols that were referred to uh, were simply carvings that men had made. They'd gone into the forest, they'd found a tree, cut it down, hacked it into some sort of shape of some description, covered it in uh, decorative items to try and make it look the part that they wanted, but it was their creation, it was not God's creation. Now, Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8, elaborate a little bit more on this uh, theme. Their idols, it says, are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet, they have, but they do not walk, nor do they utter or mutter through their throat you see whilst the people had turned to idolatry they would speak to their idols they would pray to their idols and we've just read this fascinating account here in one kings and we've heard what the prophets of Baal did they kept on and they kept on They performed various rituals for their idols. But the idols knew nothing because they couldn't hear, nor could they see, nor could they smell, nor could they move. Because they were just constructions that had been made. What good is it to pray to a God who cannot hear you? there's no value at all because we want and we know and we recognize and we realize that the God that we pray to hears us sees us and understands us and that's the message that we want to look at as we come to 1 Kings 18 this morning because we see a tremendous lesson for us so back in Jeremiah 10 and verse 10 the verse states this it says but the Lord is the true God and he is the living God And He is the everlasting God. And so we give thanks for those three explanations for us. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And He is the everlasting King. So what does this mean for us? Well, it doesn't take uh, a theologian to work this out, does it? A child could come up with the answers. It simply means that God can hear us. It means that God can move as He needs to move. He can smell. He can move his mighty hand. He hears, he sees. Because he is the living God. And because he is the living God, and this is where it gets exciting for us, we are able to commune with him in prayer and in our daily relationship with him. So this morning uh, we turn uh, particularly to look at verses 36 to 39 that are contained in 1 Kings 18. Verse 36 reads, I just find it here. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day, that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up all the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. Amen. Chapter 18 of 1 Kings is probably the lesson that we learnt in Sunday school, as we've commented already. But this morning, we have to look at the whole chapter. And this morning, we learn that this chapter is not just for children. In fact, it contains some incredible lessons for us so that we can live our lives effectively for God, so that we can have a relationship with God, so that we can understand and know the character of God and what His requirements of us are. Now, you might think to yourself, well, this is a bit of a strange passage to be able to learn these things from. And there are those that might say, well, of course, this is the pastor's interpretation of this particular section of Scripture. And you might even go out and think to yourself, he's not necessarily right. And there are times when we have different interpretations, perhaps, on Scripture. But I want to make a point this morning which is important for us all to understand. And it's this. In fact, J.I. Packer stated that Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, J.I. Packer, I think, uh, lived and worked for a long period in Vancouver and is recognized as a theologian of both British and Canadian descent, so we're safe on that one. But J.I. Packer, I think he wrote a really good book entitled Knowing God, and if you're able to catch hold of that one, do so. But he made this point that when we come to scripture, and let's face it, sometimes we do come to scriptures and we think to ourselves, now how in the world am I meant to understand this? Is this simply for children as a story? that we talk about, you know, God sending fire from heaven, burning up a sacrifice and so on. Or is there something else that we can understand and learn from it? So one of the principles that we always have is that when we come to a section of Scripture which is not easy to understand, we don't necessarily rush off and get our uh, commentary on that particular section of Scripture. What we begin to do is to look at Scripture and to see what Scripture says about Scripture. And this, I think, is one of the wonderful examples that we have uh, that helps us to understand this. Because when we turn to the the New Testament... We discover that the New Testament helps us greatly to understand the account that we have here recorded in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And already in your minds, you're beginning to think to yourself, yes, now I remember that the New Testament talks about the prophet Elijah, not just once, not just twice, but a few times. You see, the New Testament has a very clear understanding of the prophet Elijah, in fact, It's got a number of views on the prophet of Elijah from different angles, different perspectives, And so when we come to any of the references in the New Testament, we are able to understand from the Scriptures how the apostles saw the account that we have here in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now that immediately gives us a great deal of clarity because all of a sudden we're not just... Looking at that one section of Scripture, we're beginning to look at how it has been presented and how this man, Elijah, was presented in the New Testament. And one of the clear understandings of Elijah, of course, is that he was a man of prayer. And the reason that we're looking at this this morning is because we're starting, God willing, during the course of the next few weeks, a series of messages looking on prayer. How do we pray? Why do we pray? What do we expect in the way of answers as we pray? Does God hear our prayers? What's the requirement for us as we come to God in prayer? And we begin to touch on some of these things this morning, and I hope that as we look at Elijah, we will begin to understand that just as the New Testament points out, he was a man of prayer, and so that's the reason that we have come to this section this morning. And of course, James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 are already verses that you might have been thinking to yourself, yes, yes. Now I remember because we read this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months and he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. And we say, wow, isn't that wonderful? And there are some things that we can immediately learn from this Old Testament passage, from the account of Elijah, many accounts of Elijah that we begin to see. But I think the very first startling point that comes out from this New Testament reference to Elijah is the fact that he was just like you and me. Let's talk about it. Because the verse begins, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And so already we're beginning to learn something incredible. Elijah was like us. In other words, he had the same at views and, and and opinions on many things but when we think of elijah we think of him as a giant in terms of his spirituality and his walk with god and of course he was but he was just like us the scriptures say he was human and subject to the same pressures of life that we face But, of course, Elijah was a giant in prayer. And this is why God used him. But what I want you to try and think to yourself is that what we've done is we've gone to the New Testament and we've taken, if you like, a clue, Uh, a key. That might be a better word for it. And we're going to take this key now and try and unlock what we have here in 1 Kings 18. So that's the way I want us to try and look at this and to understand it. So, with this key in mind, let's turn back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. And we discover straight away that Elijah was indeed a man of prayer. So, the apostle James was correct when he made that statement. And in 1 Kings 18 verse 24, we have this confirmation for us. So if you can keep your Bibles open uh, to this uh, uh, section of Scripture, then we'll quickly look at different verses because it's important that we see them for ourselves and that we understand. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And so all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now, there's a fine example of how to handle an Old Testament passage in a New Testament way that we have before us. That is to say, how do I treat the Old Testament as a Christian book? Because essentially that's what we're doing. We're taking the key from the New Testament passage and we're going back to the Old Testament to be able to understand it and to unlock it. Uh, There was a church that ran out of space. Uh, It needed more space to meet, and they noticed that the synagogue, this is again back in Britain, sorry about that, it was in uh, uh, East uh, London, and uh, they noticed that the synagogue seemed to have dwindling numbers, but it had a great big hall that was used for various meetings and the pastor plucked up courage one day and he went to see the rabbi and he said I wonder sir is there any possibility that we could meet in this big hall that you have you don't use it on sundays is there a possibility well they had a little meeting about it and they came back and uh, the the rabbi uh, said to the pastor we've discussed it and we've decided that we'll give it a go for a few for a few months and just see how it works out because you know there's a bit of tension between christians and uh, and Jews in, in a number of areas. So they, the pastor goes into the hall, and the hall is perfect. It's got a piano, it's got lovely seating, the lighting is great. And then he notices up at the front in the corner, there's a copy of the Torah, the Old Testament, in a big scroll. And he goes up to it, and he looks at it, and he thinks, this is incredible. It's the scriptures. And the rabbi comes in, and he's didn't make notice that he was uh, coming in, and uh, he says, To the pastor he says that's our scriptures and the pastor looked at him and said no it's not it's ours so a little bit of a tussle taking place here and I wonder if you've ever considered to yourself the fact that the Old Testament is indeed a Christian book why is it a Christian book because the fulfillment of the Old Testament is in Jesus Christ the types that we see the pictures in the Old Testament are of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole of the sacrificial system culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament has been taken and it is now firmly a Christian book. It might sound like a bit of a harsh thing to say in some respects, but that is the reality that we face. But of course this now means that we look at the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective. And suddenly we begin to understand things I want to say that this is one of the passages that helps us to understand what is going on. Because as we read verse 24, which uh, we've just uh, read uh, uh, together, we have to omit the word fire. Now, this doesn't mean that we are rationalistic critics, uh, that we are cutting out what we don't believe in and what we don't like. You see, if we are Christians, then fire is of no importance to us any longer. Please bear with me. If anybody disagrees, we can shout out now or we can talk about it afterwards, which might be the the more genteel way of, uh, of dealing with things. But you see, we have to go back to the New Testament to understand the point that's being made here. Because fire is of no importance to us as believers, We know that God is not going to send down fire from heaven because the Gospels are quite clear about that because now when we turn to Luke chapter 9, and you'll know immediately the section of Scripture that we're going for, but Luke chapter 9 verse 45 reads, and when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? So remember what we've said, the lesson that we're learning, if you've got problems in interpreting Scripture, look at Scripture, because the verse goes on and says, but he turned and he rebuked them, and our Lord Jesus said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and then they went on to another village. So you see the value that we begin to have now as we look at Scripture. So, for the believer, we read verse 24, and it goes something like this. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers, He is God. So do you see how the key from the New Testament helps us to understand the passages that we have in the Old Testament. And what a magnificent statement this is. We are being told a great deal about God. And the number one thing is this, God is not a dumb idol. God speaks, and this is why we have the Scriptures, the Word of God, This is why Jesus was the Word made flesh. And I want to say this to you. We are privileged as Christians, as believers, that we believe and we know and we have a relationship with a God who is not dumb. We have a relationship with a God who's not deaf. We have a relationship with a God who hears us. And he also talks to us. And he speaks to us. And that, friends, is a privilege. And then we go a step further, and we learn from Elijah that God is indeed a God who listens to everything that we say. Now, you must put these two points together, because as I've mentioned, and I just reiterate again, because there's a a difference between religion and relationship, You cannot have a relationship with somebody who does all the talking. Um, I met a chap once who said, you haven't met my wife, I can't get a word in edgeways. And he said, we can't have a relationship because she doesn't listen to a word I say. And I'm sure there are plenty of accounts where the guy doesn't listen to a word his wife says. And we can't have a relationship with a God who doesn't listen as well as speak. So when we understand that there is a God who speaks and also a God who listens, we discover that we can have, and in fact God wants us to have, relationship with Him. He has something to say to us, but He wants to hear what we have to say. In fact, He delights to listen to us. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So we have the assurance that God hears us as we ask in his will. Now, of course, there's a lot tied up in that, and we will touch on some of that in just a moment. So the challenge of Elijah is a fundamental one. Elijah is saying that God is God, and God speaks, and God listens. And that's the God that I want, and that's the God that you want. The challenge of Mount Carmel is for all of us as adult believers. It's not just meant for children in Sunday school, because 1 Kings 18 tells us a great deal about who God is. And I'm talking about God with a capital G here. Because the society that we live in today, in those letters, G-O-D, inserts whatever they want. They include whatever picture they have in their mind as to what they want their God to be. And that includes people in churches too. Includes people out in the street. Includes people in the house next to you. And I hope and pray that it doesn't include us because what we need to do is to come to God's Word so that we know who God is. We know what He's done for us, what He continues to do for us, what He does in our lives and what He does through our lives because we have relationship with Him. And so with the key that we have from the New Testament we find that much of this chapter falls into place. No longer is it something abstract, it's concrete. And this so often happens with Scripture. When we start to listen and to read the Word of God in a cohesive manner, then we find the understanding that we're looking for. And what we're being taught here is that prayer that is not directed at the true and living God is a waste of time that's the lesson why is it a waste of time because we have to have a God who can hear a God who speaks a God who answers us and so we have a delightful picture perhaps an amusing picture at times as this day-long prayer meeting is taking place. Now, I know there are some people here who come from backgrounds where it was the length of the prayer that mattered rather than the content of the prayer that was particularly important. And uh, I remember growing up in, uh, in the, the, uh, the Baptist Church in uh, Reading in England, uh, when I got to the age of 10 or 11, possibly 12, uh, my father insisted that I went to the weekly prayer meeting and uh, I've mentioned this before it's something I think that we're beginning to lose because what's the next generation going to do we're we're not teaching them to come along and to pray and to be part of and it was not easy I've got to be honest with you and you know as 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 a youngster it was hard but I'm so glad that my father insisted that this happened but I do remember uh, and his name was actually Derek Williams. I think I said yesterday at the men's meeting it was Derek Green or something, but I got slightly confused. But then last night in a, in a, in a, in a moment, a, a flash of light came, and it was uh, Derek Williams. The meeting started at 7 o'clock and finished at 9.30. Okay? First hour was Bible study, hour and a half of prayer meeting. Okay? And at 28 minutes past 9, Derek Williams would stand up, And he would begin his prayer with, Oh God, we are but worms of the earth, earthy. And then he would continue for the next 10, 15, 20 minutes. And so we never got home or we were never able to leave before 10 to 10 at night. Now that's a prayer meeting for you. But you see, the thing is, it's not the quantity that really matters. It's what we say, and it's whether we're prepared to come and to meet in prayer. So, we have here the prophets of Baal. They went on all day. Notice that at noon, when the fire had still not come, so they continued with their prayer meeting until the time of the evening sacrifice. And friends, they thought that their gods would hear them because they kept praying all day. And there are some Christians who think that today. Some Christians pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight and not length, wrote Charles Spurgeon. Some Christians think that God is more likely to respond if we just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. What makes us think that? Do we think to ourselves, God isn't listening to us? Are we determined to make our point? And God, until you answer exactly as I want it, I'm going to keep on and on and on. The prophets of Baal were pagans. And again, the New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament. And we're told not to pray as pagans, Matthew 6, 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think that they will be heard by their many words. Why do we not need to continue in repetition? Because God listens to us. He hears. So what we have here in 1 Kings 18 is a ridiculous picture. An ironic picture of pagans praying that goes on for hours and it achieves nothing. Why? Because their gods do not hear. Their gods do not speak. They don't move. Verse 26, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No answer. Then they leapt about the altar that they had made. And magnificently at the end of verse 29. And then midday was past. They prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so we come to the point of our message this morning. We have seen how the Baal prophets treated their gods. But the question is, by contrast, how do we as believers, how do we as Christians come to our God? How do we come to Him? How do we pray for the furtherance of his kingdom? How do we pray to him? And it's vital that we get this right because we are increasingly living in a state of confusion in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ itself. And our society is confused too. So let's go straight to Elijah's prayer. And the first thing we notice is that his prayer, by contrast, is what? Short. Thank you, Simon. It's short. To the point. However, we also notice that before he prays, he does a lot of preparation. And we need to look at that preparation very briefly this morning. Elijah's prayer is just a couple of verses long. However, Elijah does not just casually say, let's just have a quick word of prayer as we often do don't we notice that elijah engages in a great deal of preparation before he comes to the lord in prayer before he brings the people to the lord in prayer so keep your fingers open at uh, the verse uh, 30 to 35 and we just quickly look at a few points that uh, are brought to us in these verses in verse 30, notice that Elijah begins by repairing the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And friends, this is where it gets personal. Because we've got to make sure that the altar in our lives, the altar in our families, has not been broken down. It's not been discarded. It's not been left to ruin Do we push the true and living God to the back of our lives? There's a place that we keep God in. And I don't want God to come in and spoil all the things that we want to do. And has the altar in our lives been pushed back? What about our churches? What's the altar like in our churches? Do we give Christ the preeminence that we should do? and our society has pushed God completely back. A lady writes in Norwich on the infamous uh, Facebook page this week referring to Christians, I ask them to refrain from wasting my time with the false narrative surrounding religion, and I ask them to take a course in reality. I am so done with their beep rhetoric. She's talking to you, she's talking to me, and she's talking to God. So firstly, Elijah had to painstakingly repair the altar before he comes to God with his short prayer. And we need to repair the altar in our lives and in our homes and in our churches. And sometimes this takes time. What are the things that hinder? The things that must be put right in our lives. Well, here's just a few of them that we see from the scriptures. Wrong motives. What's your motives? James 4 verse 3 says, and when you ask God, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So what are our motives in our prayers? Dishonoring relationships. This is an interesting one. Uh, Peter's talking here in uh, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, and he says, husbands, give honor to your wives. Now, why does he say that? Well, according to the verse that we have here, it says, Treat her as you should, so that your prayers will be answered. Men, particularly, relationships are important. We've got to make sure it's right. Secret sin. Psalm 66 If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We go on doing it our way with the secret sin in our lives. And we forget that the altar has been broken down. Idols in our hearts. Fascinating verses, Ezekiel 14, 3. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to their requests, God says. A lack of faith. Mark 6, verses 5 to 6. Jesus has been working miracles and, and, and then he comes to people that had a lack of faith. And here's a very major one for us. Lack of forgiveness. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. You see, we have to prepare We have to repair the altar in our lives. And then in verse uh, 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And notice in verse 31, he says, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, I want you to notice this next statement very, very clearly, to whom the word of the Lord had come. Do you realize that there is no understanding in the Bible that the word of God is just constantly coming to different people All the time. Now some of you may be shocked to hear that. You might disagree. But come with your Bibles and let's go through it together. You know what I mean. Someone says to you or you yourself say it. God has spoken to me. He told me. But there's no idea in the Bible that this is, that God is constantly speaking like this. And it's amazing how quickly God changes his mind, isn't it? Someone says, you know, God's told me to come to Norwich Baptist Church. God's told me to be part of the leadership team here. And the following week, God's told me to go to another church. Is this the God that changes his mind? It's not how it works. And so we've got to be very careful when we say that God has told us something, that God has said something, because this is not the overall understanding that we have from Scripture as to how God speaks. This is not God speaking. It is our hearts so often speaking. It is our minds telling us just what we want to hear. What we need to understand is that God has revealed himself historically He has revealed himself, so these scriptures say, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that is the final revelation of the Old Testament, and our God is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has revealed himself historically at the incarnation, the death of the Lord Jesus, and his resurrection. Those are the times that God has revealed himself, giving a complete picture of salvation for his people. Now, I'm not saying for one moment that God never speaks outside of these historical occasions. But verse 31 is telling. It says, to whom the word of the Lord came. Notice not to whom the word of the Lord is coming. He talks in the past tense. So if you want to know what God stands for, I have to go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. And if you want to know what Christianity is, then you have to go back to Jesus Christ... And the apostles. So here is Elijah. He spends time repairing the altar. He takes these 12 stones in order that they may understand the nature of their God. Because he wants them to know who this God is. What's his name? How is he to be addressed? And he wants to be addressed as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That is Jacob. And of course remembering names is important. And in the New Testament, he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now thirdly, in his preparation, Elijah has a trench dug around the altar. That takes time. And then fourthly, he has the wood arranged and the animal butchered and placed on the altar. And again, this takes time. And fifthly, he has loads of water brought up from the sea because Mount Carmel is near to the Mediterranean. If you look down, you can see the sea. And I guess it's a long way to go from the ocean all the way back up to the top of the mountain and he says you know guys come and flood the the the, the altar and he says do it once and then he says do it twice and they say do you really want us to go all the way down there for a third time and Elijah says do it a third time so that's all the things Elijah must do before he prays you see there's nothing casual about prayer you see, as Elijah prays, he wants to show that he is praying to a God who has revealed himself in history. Elijah comes with a sacrifice and everything is order in order. Elijah wants the people to know that they can only respond to a God who has first revealed himself to them. There's no such thing of responding to a God before he reveals himself first. The Word of God always comes first. And after all this has happened, Elijah is ready to pray. And his prayer is truly amazing. And we find that he prays three remarkable things. The first is that the people recognize their God for who he is. That they show respect and hallow his name, verse 36. This is Elijah's first priority. And isn't it interesting that this is the first priority given to the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And next week... We conclude looking at 1 Kings 18 by looking at the prayer that Elijah actually made and we look forward to what we can learn.